Welcome to the Christ and Classics podcast, where we consider the classics in light of the Christ. My name is Colton Moore, and for today's episode, we have a very special guest whose name is... Ben House. And he's with us today to discuss a, a pressing topic at hand, at least here in the States, and that is classical Christian education. Ben has got 40 plus years of education under his belt. He's got a book, uh, Punic Wars and Culture Wars, Christian Essays on, I forget. History and Teaching. History and Teaching. He's also just uh, recently uh, been published in uh, a, uh, a book called The Devil's Diet. Oh gosh, subtitle has something to do with The Seven Daily Sins. Yes. <laughs> and you don't remember it? <laughs> I'm just one of several contributors. <laughs> yes. Yes, on the chapter regarding uh, lust. He's got several uh, other articles and publications online. You can find him in a variety of places. And as we were just talking, several unpublished things that you'd like to speed up across the finish line uh, <laughs> at some point. At some point. So <clears throat> uh, the goal for, t- for, for the next 25 minutes or so is simply to... Um, Get to know Ben a little bit. He's taught for 16 or so years in a, in, a, in a public setting. And about 25 or so years ago, transitioned out of the public education realm and uh, began a new classical Christian school. And since this podcast deals with Christ and the classics, and since the, the classics, classic works of antiquity and even modern classics are so integral to a classical Christian education, we thought it'd be a good idea to maybe uh, talk about that. And so, Ben, I'd like to just start off. We, we, we could start in a, in a few different ways, but why don't you just tell us a bit about your um, education experience? How did, you, how did you get started teaching? Where did you teach at first? How long? And then what made you transition out of a... Uh, a government public education toward a private classical Christian education? Well, I had a, what I would just consider an ideal experience in public schools. And I didn't leave public schools because of uh, being upset or being angry over things they were doing or over things that were included at that time. Uh, I was in a school in uh, rural Arkansas, uh, almost all of the administrators I worked under were Christian. Uh, there were Christians on the, uh, on the faculty. And I generally had a large, just lots of latitude in terms of what I could teach. And so I would have very definitely said, and I think any of my students would, uh, that paid attention would remember, that I specifically taught from a Christian point of view. I was a history teacher. Hmm. And so uh, it's, it's easy enough in, uh, if you're dealing with American and world history to uh, say, uh, I'm going to, to include these things that sometimes weren't in the textbook. Uh, things like uh, the Great Awakening, uh, an emphasis on uh, the Reformation, uh, more things about uh, Christian influences along the way. So there were lots of opportunities there. But it was never what I wanted as the, uh, as the ultimate final point because I still wanted to have a better kind of schooling. And it was only whenever I began hearing about, um, about classical Christian education that I had that sense that, uh, yeah, this is exactly it. 
I think it would have been easy enough, and we were just always waiting for the opportunity back in those days to have had a Christian school that would have been good. Uh, but I think the classical uh, Christian model provided a, uh, a, an even better model for it. When did you start teaching? I started in 1979, and I had one year in Avery, Texas, and then I went to Genoa, Arkansas in 1980 and stayed there until spring of 1996. Ah, okay. It you mentioned that uh, key movements such as the Great Awakening in the States and the Reformation in Europe uh, weren't uh, listed or at least emphasized in, in your textbooks? Well, they, they were in the textbooks, but usually, you know, a, a textbook is a, um, is a hodgepodge of things. So uh, you may have over a course of a chapter, you know, 20 or 30 different things, and it's really going to be the teacher who's going to decide what gets included, what gets expanded, what gets emphasized, what gets left out. Hmm. And so, I, you know, as a, um, as, a, as a Christian teacher, I put a high premium on those, uh, on those key Christian leaders in the past, uh, both in terms of, uh, of religious leaders and uh, political leaders, or, uh, you know, a lot of emphasis on things like the Puritan founding of many of the American colonies. So you, you started teaching in... Uh, in public schools in 1979. When did you cease teaching in public schools? What year? We started uh, Veritas Academy in 1996. Okay, so roughly 17 years you were in the public sphere. So what was, in your mind, during those 17 years, what did you sense was lacking, um, not just in the history department where where you taught mainly, but uh, across the board, educationally, what was what was lacking at that time in public education? Well, there's a recur- recurring story that whenever you're reading history about people who are, and, and it, it doesn't matter where you land in the past, you come across this same story of, of people who are read widely in the classics, uh, who were reading uh, the Greek mm. uh, tragedians in Greek, they were reading the Iliad, <laughs> the Odyssey, uh, then you know you get to the founding fathers. They were all classically trained. I didn't. I didn't have the uh, the the language in my mind as to what that was. I just knew that people that that education in the past was producing superior results. And over and over again, it happened where you would read about these people who were who were well educated, who read uh, things in depth, and. It kept occurring to me that what I was good at and what I was training my students to be good at was being able to, um, to win a Trivial Pursuit. So, you know, the, <laughs> if the question comes up of, uh, of, you know, who wrote Hamlet? Well, you know, my students would know that. You know, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey? Uh, who wrote this? Who wrote that? Who did such and such? And it had never been an emphasis to read those things. And amazingly... Uh, even though I, I was in college studying history, we never read any of the classic historians, Herodotus, Thucydides, uh, all the way up to uh, you know American history historic, historians like uh, Bancroft and others. You didn't read those. And it was almost like it never, it never sunk in that we should actually go to the sources. Mm. Uh, I talk quite often about uh, who wrote the Federalist Papers. Why were the Federalist Papers written? But uh, I had never read the Federalist Papers. I think you know George Grant uses the phrase that is so apt where he would describe all the different levels of his education. 
and he would uh, come back and he would say, I was robbed. <laughs> and it's because our education system was robbing us of all of this, uh, all this great learning. The one exception was I had lots of literature classes and the literature classes didn't get away from reading the literary works. Uh, you know, since that time, I have to, I did take a literature class where we uh, we had to deal with um, all kinds of uh, things like feminist literary theory, Marxist literary theory, <laughs> queer literary theory, which is the actual name of it, and other things as opposed to reading the literary works. But in literature classes, we did read Shakespeare. We did read things, but quite often... The, the system at the college level is you read selections. In high school, at best, you read snippets. You never get to go in depth and read the whole so, work. Yeah. Why is it important to, to read an entire work instead of just the key sections of, of the work? Well, I think a good example with that would be if someone or if a textbook were to, uh, a, a, a traditional secular textbook were to give us something about the Bible, we would end up having something like the Beatitudes and 1 Corinthians 13. <laughs> and, you know, of course, I love the Beatitudes. I love 1 Corinthians 13. But that doesn't even come close to giving us a picture of the Bible. <laughs> uh, it doesn't, uh, it, it, it gives a, it gives a, a thread of what's going on uh, and it, it would be given there in a context that doesn't make any sense. And quite often uh, in these stories, you just get a taste of something. It's, uh, it, it's like if you go and um, uh, you have a number of uh, different foods and you're just taking a bite of each one. It may very well just decide like, oh, well, this is really good. But uh, taking a bite of something is not like having a meal. Classic case. Uh, Textbooks would, would give things like the prologue and the characters to um, Canterbury Tales. Uh, and all of that is rich, but if you don't get the entire gamut of all the stories, you don't see what all these people are really like and what the point of it is. It's just, it's just a uh, case of uh, here's a dozen or two descriptions of some uh, odd and interesting people on this trip. Uh, you're just... you're. Sometimes, obviously, we can't read everything. And, you know, some things you might just need a portion of, or you may only have time for that. But quite often, it's just not giving the picture. Yeah, and this it's is... It's like a postcard from a, you know, if I can use another illustration, it's like a postcard from the Grand Canyon. And this seems to be uh, still a common thing in, in public school textbooks, at least from a literature perspective. I remember in high school, middle school and high school, we had... Literature textbooks that had selections of keywords: Scarlet Letter, The Crucible, Shakespeare, and even now, um, secular and Christian publishers produce these textbooks with just selections. Albeit, perhaps there's two thirds of the work there, maybe, but it's not in its entirety. Um, why are I, this is a genuine question? Like, what? Why are publishers? Uh, uh, doing this rather than promoting whole book works because we like the idea that you can produce this thing called a textbook and it has in it what you need to know and uh, that's the the publisher can make money doing that if the publisher says we'll go out and buy 
uh, a dozen novels that are produced from uh, you know six or eight different sources that publisher is not making any money. So it's this sense that uh, we can package everything up in a box and we like being able to do that. You know, that's why people will say something like, well, I've studied this, I've studied that. Like, no, you haven't. You've been through a textbook. <laughs> and, and, even, uh, and even then, uh, most of the time, people have not read those textbooks carefully. Uh, even then, they haven't uh, been exposed to different views of whatever the issue is or, or even the complexity of it. And textbooks are good uh, in the same way that, uh, that the dictionary is good. It's like a, they're a good reference. They have their place and they can be useful but it's not uh, the depth of, uh, of learning. You've got to go to some sources. And some of it is just the, the sheer discipline of plodding through something. Mm. And sometimes it's going to be a discipline. And sometimes it's going to be even, uh, you know, the kind of thing that's going to be arduous and torturous and, uh, and miserable. And maybe as a student, you'll come away as like, I don't really want to do that again. Uh, but there's... It's, like running a marathon. Uh, there's a benefit uh, to it, even if the last uh, third of it or so you're walking and then finally somebody's dragging you across the finish line. That sense of, I've made it through this. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking of something right now that I, I don't think I've put together in my mind yet, so my thoughts are probably going to be really jumbled. But this, this has to do with a larger theme in education. It seems that we're concerned more about, well, our, our concern for the major events or details of a book or uh, major details of education in general are, are to the degree that we devalue some of the minor details of a story or those of education. Here's what I mean. The big moments in a book or a poem, like the Iliad, find their meaning only alongside all of the minor, minuscule details the author has given us. So, for example, my I'm in my eighth grade class on Friday. We're we're in uh, book one, chapter oh gosh, seven, eight, or nine of uh, Lord of the Rings. So, the Fellowship of the Ring. We're we've just met Tom Bombadil, and his whole enigmatic uh, presence with his wife is so jolting. The beauty of his character is enhanced by the well-trodden path alongside the Withy Wendell that he's going back and forth on. That Tolkien spends lots of detail describing, or the the reeds in the in the in the um, in the river that uh, that uh, are, are right next to the the water lilies that he goes and picks for Goldberry, his wife, and all the details of the forests and the sky and, and, the, and the mood all play into this final moment when you finally meet Tom. And you're like, this is who he is. And so all these minor details that perhaps a textbook might have cut out because they see it as unnecessary to the, to the main point actually are purposefully serving to bolster that, that moment. I think we're, we're hyper-obsessed with summaries and um, synthesizing to a, to a degree that we drown out all the other minor details. And we see that in education. Like, we, uh, I had posted on my on my door uh, a quote that you sent me about about wisdom. Like it was like a, a pithy um, satirical <laughs> quote that was like, "You never hear wisdom, uh, the word wisdom ever referred to in education." And you're right. It's just because we see wisdom as really unnecessary to the task of K 
calculus or wisdom as like unnecessary really to, to the task of being able to understand grammar and syntax and to write logically. Well, there's not a uh, there's not a standardized test that's out there that tests wisdom. And education is marked by a number of numbers and things of that sort. And so if your school is scoring high on those numbers, it must be doing something right. And it's, uh, and, and, and a person, and, and you know, there are plenty of sharp kids out there who are passing those tests and all, and they may have some wisdom, but wisdom by its very nature is not uh, verifiable. You can't test it. Uh, uh, you can't mark it in a grade book. Uh, and this, the schools like to, they, you know, they, they fall back to wanting to get everything down to some sort of magic number. I'm always uh, impressed, or not impressed, I'm actually uh, uh, <laughs> shocked by the fact that we have this magical thing of something like, if you make a 70, that is passing. And I always think of the fact that what if you're approaching a subject that you know nothing about and in terms of what you go through, you're, you reach a point where you can pass, you can make a 50 on an exam over it. You know, I can't read a Greek New Testament, but if I could get through 25 to 50% of the words in a, uh, in a passage written in, uh, in Greek, why would that be considered a, a failing? I would consider that a great accomplishment. But education is obsessed with these things that we call results. And even we, we've lost the word, the meaning of words there. So we have at the end of uh, education, this thing that's called commencement now. We're coming to our commencement services and thinking that that means like, oh, good. And it's kind of funny because kids describe it almost like they've survived uh, D-Day in World <laughs> War II. It's like, oh, we've been through so much together and now we've accomplished all this. <laughs> like, no, it's commencement. You're now going to commence uh, going out and uh, yeah. applying what you've learned and experienced and so on. It's not an ending, yeah. uh, but it's uh, it's actually prepared you for a beginning. Yeah. But I just have to say that uh, overall uh, in the American system now, particularly in the state school system, it's not just like, oh, well, we need to, uh, to, to change this little policy. We need to Oh, well, he had prayer added back in. If we just took this out, if we just didn't let this group um, influence it and so on, it's like, no, it's the system that is yeah. at fault. And the faults are so many that it's not, you know, in a legislative act to, uh, to, to change this book or that book is not going to do it. Yeah, yeah. Not just changing the sexual ethics that are promoted or ad adopted is going to fix the, the the root problem, but everything that's led up to those points. And correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, but there's a there's a term that we typically refer to this kind of education. We call it progressive educa education. This this like in a nutshell, how would you describe all that you've been talking about? Well, the the root of progressive education goes back to mm. the progressive movement out of the late 1800s, early 1900s. And very clearly, their worldview was that human perfection was possible. Uh, but by and large, it's going to be the state that brings this about. The state is going to create this model of what it looks like. 
and it's going to uh, then impose that. And that's one of the reasons, one of the objections that has, uh, that, that has emerged over the years against uh, private education in general is that those kids aren't learning the same thing as our kids. Hmm. And I like the thought that uh, even in a, uh, in a system of uh, private Christian schools, that the children that might come out of my school might think that uh, uh, Milton's Paradise Lost is uh, the best Christian uh, epic, and the kids that come out of a uh, Catholic uh, classical Christian school will uh, want to uh, meet them and fight in the playground because <laughs> they say that Dante's Divine Comedy is uh, the best. So like, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? That would be awesome. That we are, uh, we're debating that, and uh, you know, and that, uh, they're not all thinking alike. Uh, we don't learn anything from all thinking alike. And, mm. and, and, and part of learning is just that realization of like, oh my goodness, how little I know. And so if I run into other people who, ha who know that same little bit uh, and we're just patting each other on the back, nothing happens. But if we run into somebody who says, uh, oh, no, I think uh, you're totally off on this and here's a better way, uh. then uh, whether I adopt what they say or not, if it's just that experience of like, wow, you know, I just don't know. That's some of what, you know, we've talked about recently and talking about of mice and men, of just um, the struggle with how easy it'd be to come up with a really good answer and just say, when George kills Lenny, that's uh, just totally wrong. Well, of course, killing somebody is, uh, is wrong. But in the context of that book, we just have to grapple with, well, what about this and what about that? And we're just left there saying, was it an act of murder or was it an act of love to protect him from something far worse? Yeah. And if, if you got an easy answer to that, it's like, I, I think maybe you need to go reread the book one more time. <laughs> yeah. So you're, you're experiencing all these, all these tensions in public education, which are still thriving today, just... Well, I think, down, no, no. I, I would uh, say far worse than when it, what I experienced yeah. in, in 1990 something. Further down the road, yeah. yes, yep. And so, uh, you were introduced to classical Christian education, and um, tell us briefly, like, how you were introduced to classical Christian education, and then explain to us like, what it is and why it's a superior alternative to education today. A good friend of mine and I, and I were reading a lot of, and listening to a lot of the uh, writings and uh, reading the writings and listening to tapes by R.J. Rushdoony, who is a strong defender of Christian education. Notice that, listening to tapes. Yes, cassette <laughs> tapes. That's what we were listening to, yes. Uh, and R.J. Rushdoony was advocating Christian education back in a time when very few people outside of some Dutch communities, uh, Dutch reform communities, and, and some Catholics were advocating such a thing. And we were imbibing what he was saying. And his organization produced a journal called Journal of Christian Reconstruction. And they had a, an, a, a journal devoted to education, and it reprinted a, an article by Dorothy Sayers on the Lost Tools of Learning. And uh, Dorothy Sayers had been a, uh, a friend to C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, and uh, had uh, she not been a she, she would have been one of the inklings down there with the guys hanging out. She may have broken in there on occasion anyway, but uh, <laughs> she's in the same mindset. 
And we read this article and we're both just struck by uh, this concept of the trivium. And then it was put aside because life went on. And then we discovered that there were people who had read that same article and who said, uh, let's start a school like this. And the, I don't know exactly when the name classical Christian education got pinned onto that, but as it happened, some, there were some people that we knew of that started a, uh, you know, a movement and a school thinking that way. And it turned out that as God so often does, there were other people in other parts of the country who were doing and saying and moving in the same direction. So it was like, well, hey, you're not alone. We're doing that too. And then there were those people who were saying, we've been doing parts of that for, for ages. And so uh, we got swept up in uh, what was then just a uh, very um, off-the-grid kind of movement. And what came about for us was that in our church, we had lots of families that were homeschooling. They had tried various uh, ACE programs, which were self-paced, a really pitiful uh, education, Christian education program, but it did have the result of uh, kids from ACE schools were testing out a year or two above kids from public school. Uh, and they were trying other things. Becca had uh, put together a curriculum. Bob Jones had put together, you know, and I'm talking about K through 12 curricula. Uh, Bob Jones had done the same. There were a few other little uh, publications here and there. And in our church, people were finding the homeschooling or the less than satisfying Christian schools okay for elementary, but their kids were moving into high school. And the parent who feels comfortable teaching their child's seventh grade math doesn't feel as comfortable going into uh, algebra one, two, and one and two, and geometry and calculus, uh, and you know whatever else might be missing. So the opportunity was there for us. We had a large, a fairly large number. We thought I think maybe about six or eight, maybe ten kids of high school level. <laughs> so we started a school that was uh, grade seven through twelve. And uh, it was uh, with this idea of like, this is a classical Christian school. And meanwhile, we were asking ourselves for the next five or six years, we were saying this is a classical Christian school and also saying, what is a classical Christian school? Yeah. Because we were, we were defining it and trying to figure it out. And we knew that uh, in a classical Christian school, you teach Latin. And we knew that you had a course called Logic, whatever that is. <laughs> and we knew that uh, we were supposed to have a class called rhetoric, whatever that is. And, and very obviously, if it's called a classical Christian school, you ought to read classics. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, we, uh, there was a lot of trial and error. And uh, there were, a, there were a, lot of, uh, a lot of things where it goes back to what G.K. Chesterton said. And he said, anything worth doing is worth doing badly. And we did a lot of incredibly great things badly. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was, it was good because it was venturing out and trying things that, uh, uh, that had not been done. And, you know, with teachers who were, in some cases, not trained teachers. Teachers who, and like, my, like myself, uh, I was trained in the public school system. And we were having to say, how can we do this in a way that's better? You don't jettison everything you've ever done as a teacher, uh, but you just try to figure, uh, is there a better way? Yeah, so what, were the, what was different between trying to teach according to a classical model 
um, in this new school as opposed to teaching in a public uh, environment? Well, one of the big things, of course, is that uh, it was a Christian school, and so that made a difference, and it was self-consciously going to be Christian in all areas. So uh, one of the most uh, amusing stories was uh, we had was um, someone who called once, and they said, uh, can we uh, enroll our child, but we want to skip chapel in the morning, and uh, just you know sk- skip the Christian part, and then go home to class. <laughs> uh, like... That's not the way we operate, and uh, and and so you know that was that was one major thing, and another part was that we were not going to uh, be caught up in fads and trends, and uh, you know we're teaching a test, uh, or we're trying to make sure that uh, we follow all of these little uh, you know whatever the latest thing is, we want to. You know, like if if you're not sure what you're doing in the field of education, you go back and look at what's gone on in the past. You don't say something like, "Well, we're not sure about grammar. Why don't we just try try, try just you know, yeah, let's just try not having grammar, uh, or so let's like, have some artificial intelligence generate grammar for us." Maybe yes. Well, so we went back to uh, you know, like that's why a lot of times schools will go back to things like phonics or teaching uh, more traditional ways of doing things. And it's, and it's not a sense there that everything that was done 100 years ago uh, was perfect or, or, or that it's always the model. Uh, but I can pretty well assure you that uh, if you're caught up in educational trends, whatever the buzzwords are in the public school system right now are things you should avoid. They might accidentally get something right every now and then, but most of the time that's going to be wrong. So, and, and even to the point of special educational needs, uh, which is a broad area and all. And, uh, and it has to be addressed in some sense because we learn differently. And not every child can function in a situation where they're having to learn Latin. Mm-hmm. But uh, part of what kids have to learn is that, uh, oh, I'm not good at remembering things. So I've got to be good at writing things down. Yep. Uh, and the other yep. child has to learn, like, I am good at writing things down, but I've also got to train myself to learn these things because, uh, you know, we're not just teaching kids to be good clerks. Right. So, you know, it's it's teaching, as Dorothy Sayer said, is teaching the child how to learn. And some of that comes from the child learning himself or herself so that, uh, you know, he, he or she gets to that point where it's like, I don't like to read, but it doesn't matter because I've got to read this book. Yeah. And they just, they, they force their way through it the same way that you, you know, coaches uh, traditionally do not shorten the uh, court of a basketball uh, court or the football field to make it easier for people. Uh, you know, we don't uh, reduce races to uh, just a few feet of walking around the block. Uh, but it's like you got to train, you got to push, yep. and kids can do a lot more than what we think they can do. They now they're going to groan and complain and all that kind of thing. And sometimes you have to, as a teacher, just realize like, oh yeah, I'm uh, I'm I'm killing my students, but they can accomplish a lot more than what our traditional system, uh, our our traditional public system, has said they can do. Yeah, what I what I really enjoy about. Um... Sayers' uh, lecture that she gave, which is subsequently uh, public, uh, printed and printed now, 
Um, it's a it's a famous passage. I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but I'll paraphrase where she likens a classical. Well, I, I don't even think she uses the phrase classical education so much as just education in general, like recovering the lost tools of learning. Like she, she compares um, ideal education, which we would consider classical education, to um, playing the piano. You can you can teach anybody row 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 your boat on the piano, how to play it. You don't know how to read music, just teach him what keys to press and teach him the tune, and he can do that. But you then set a piece of music in front of him that that has Mary Had a Little Lamb on it. He can't play that because you haven't taught him the tool of of reading the music and uh, relating that in your brain to your fingertips. Uh, And uh, we're... I think in, in, in modern progressive education, we're so focused on um, creating hyper-specialists um, at the expense of uh, general deep thinkers. And as Pi- John Piper would say, feelers, those who feel appropriately to uh, the content before them. Feel as in like their, their, their emotional response. They have a there's a an emotional reaction to what it is you're you're um, you're learning, especially in, in in a literature class. So a classical education, um, the vision that captivated my heart and mind back in like 2016 was this vision of you're a you're a novice. I know it. I know. I'm I'm young. I'm I know it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was going to make a joke about my hair. I am going bald. So, well, I'm not going bald, but my hair is receding. My daughter reminded me this morning. She pulled she got pulled, she, she pulled my head down and got the crown of my head. She's like, "Daddy, you you got a bald spot." I'm like, "Don't remind me. I'm just 30." So, maybe I'll be wise one day. But this it's vision, gotta, it's got to turn gray first. <laughs> if if it if it doesn't fall out before yes. then. <laughs> it's like education is um all about learning how to learn. Like when you graduate your your with your high school diploma when you're in the twelfth grade, you should be you should and and, and, and under uh, ideal circumstances you should feel confident to learn anything that you want to learn. Like my buddy, my buddy, I graduated seminary with him, and um, he goes off to Tennessee, and he's he's about to start this THM program, but he's got to find a job. And uh, he's struggling to, to, to find something, and he ends up um, getting on with a with a, a fence building company. And I was like, uh, "Brother, do you you know how to build fences? You ever built a fence in your life?" He said, "No, but if anything that uh, Wheaton College and Bethlehem College Seminary have taught me is is that uh, I know how to learn, and I can pick up a book and read how to do it, and I feel confident doing that." And I just thought that's you know that's a that's a great place to be at where I don't know like right now. My algebra, my algebra skills are probably nothing. Like I, I probably need to retake fifth and sixth grade mathematics, quite frankly. But you know what? I feel really confident in picking up a book and and, and, and going through it because I feel confident with a with with, with, with the tools of of uh, of learning. And I think that's the goal of a of a classical education. But also the ultimate goal would be. Like maybe 
you, you could debate the ultimate goal, which is praise and honor and glory to God, but wisdom and um, a sound mind to make the appropriate decisions at the appropriate times as a result of your education. And I think public education really is lacking in, in that regard, as well as the realms of grammar, logic, and 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 rhetoric altogether. Yeah, what you were saying reminded me that years ago, the uh, high school teachers used to assign the scarlet letter. And the reason why they did that is because, you know, the ones I would hear, they would say, oh, well, when you get into freshman English in college, you're going to have to read this. And then they would find out, lo and behold, teachers in, uh, who are teaching freshmen aren't teaching that book. They're teaching a different one. And it was this kind of sense like we've got to teach you something so that you've been through it once whenever you get there. And classical education has something different. And that is it's teaching you how to learn. So if you get there and they are reading Christian uh, Lavrinsdatter, then it's like it doesn't matter <laughs> if you can't even make it through the name of it. It's like you know how to read and you know yep. how to learn. Yep. And that, that's the same way with taking on any class. And it goes back to the, the way that classical education is built, and that is you've got to learn the grammar of a subject, which unfortunately is uh, what we sometimes equate as knowing the subject. But you've got to learn that, and then you've got to know the logic of it, and that is uh, how it functions together. And then you are all striving toward that rhetoric stage where you can compose ideas, work problems, present papers, uh, debate it, whatever, by taking different sides and seeing it in its depth. Now, and, and granted, we're not going to reach a real rhetoric stage in most areas in our lives, but we have to realize that's what learning is all about. You learn the names of the books of the Bible. You learn particular Bible verses and things of that sort, and then you start relating those things, and then you start seeing the big picture as a whole. And that's, that's just the essence of education. Now, all Dorothy Sayers was doing is just reflecting on how people learn. It's, and, and you're going to, you know, that's why in, in even the worst of education, you're going to get bits and pieces that fit into a classical approach to, uh, to education because you cannot escape that, even in the, worst, in the worst scenarios. Yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good. Uh, ben, with the, with the last few minutes, I just want to ask one question. There, there's, a, there's, a big there's a big classical movement in America right now, and it's happening on at least a couple of fronts. One is obviously in the classical Christian front with um, evangelical Christians, Catholic Christians, even Eastern Orthodox Christians rising up schools all over the private classical Christian schools all over the nation. But another one is government-sanctioned classical charter schools, which, in my opinion, I, I think are doing um, a, a lot of great good for, um, for the common education uh, all across the nation. Now, there's a distinction between classical education and classical Christian education. And what's the distinction between the two, and why would we say that classical Christian education is superior Oh, that's a lot to have to answer there. I think because you've got to get down to ultimately the question of like, what makes anything important? And mm. obviously, if you get a better variety of something 
and a classical approach to education. You know, if, you, if you're teaching a child better books, if you have better teachers, if you have a better approach, you're going to produce a, a more educated student. But in the Christian worldview, we are not just teaching so that we have model citizens and maybe some future presidents and senators and, uh, and, uh, and thinkers and all that. We're teaching for eternity. And if eternity is real, and that is the foundation of Christian thought, uh, then that should pervade education. Uh, if, if what Van Til says, that all facts are God-created and God-interpreted facts, then, then that changes the approach to all facts. So it's, uh, it's vital in the sense that, uh, that Christianity is vital, even though I would uh, be glad to see that, uh, that, that people who are given secular educations are, are well-trained in things, because I think that provides a good uh, leeway to uh, you know, evangelism and discussion. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And so if 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 you've never heard of classical Christian education before or if you um or if you're interested in classical Christian education, there's a number of places that you can go to online and we will uh provide the links uh in the description below. But uh one big place that you can go is the uh, Association of Classical Christian Schools. Yes. That's probably the biggest uh, organization that unites the majority of classical Christian schools in the nation. There are other fantastic organizations like um, Circe. Circe. Um, there's Classical Academic Press. There's Memoria Press, Veritas Press, and and the number is is growing. Uh, we'll link several of these in the uh, in the description below. But uh, as always, Ben, um, it's great having you on. This has uh, been uh, a wonderful discussion, and I wish we could keep it rolling. I mean. <laughs> I mean We'll, day we'll, come. <laughs> well, tomorrow when we go to work, <laughs> it'll, it'll, it'll keep continuing. So, well, okay, till next time. ancient language skills but not sure where to start? Glow's House can help. From illustrated readers and short stories to lexicons and grammars, Glow's House offers a variety of resources for beginning, intermediate, and experienced ancient language learners. Head to glowsahouse.com today. Glow's House, language resources for the global community.